You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. While they are going to class, uh, you can open up your Bibles. Actually, I'm going to have a number of scriptures on the screen for you to start, Uh, but if you want to put your finger and Philippians 3, we'll get there in a while. Uh, We've got a number of things to hit kind of before we get there, but um, we are, if you're new here, we have been in a series on idolatry, and so here's what we've learned as we've looked at the Scripture, is that Idolatry is not just some primitive practice of bowing down to a statue or worshiping the sun god or the storm god or the rain god, nor is idolatry just maybe a modern practice that is found in Eastern religions and uh, countries in the world today where there are temples with statues in them and all this sort of thing. But what we have learned is that in the Bible, an idol is anything we substitute for God anything we substitute for God. So it's, it's where we go uh, when our hearts are heavy. It's where we go for meaning and significance. It's where we go to find our identity. Uh, it's where we go for comfort and relief. It's where we go when God is not enough. Those are the idols of our lives. Now, an idol may not necessarily be a bad thing in and of itself. It could even be a gift from God, as we're going to see today. But it could be a good thing given by God that becomes an ultimate thing for us and something that we pursue as an end in itself. So we have talked about the me idol. We've talked about the money idol. We've talked about the sex idol. And last week we talked about the pleasure or the comfort idol. And in particular, the last two messages have just been outstanding. Rob brought a message on the sex idol, and Caleb brought a message on the pleasure idol. And I recommend both of those if you haven't heard them yet. Uh, And today we're going to talk about the achievement idol. The achievement idol. Now, if you walk around Frisco, you may realize it looks like a few people have achieved a few things around here in our city, right? There might be a few achievers. That There might even be one or two overachievers in the city of Frisco uh, in your kid's class. There might even be a couple of overachievers at Grace Church, possibly. The achievement idol. So as I said before, it can be something that's good that becomes ultimate for us. So I am not in this message disparaging achievement. This isn't Slacker Sunday where we are going to celebrate apathy and uh, low goals and minimal accomplishments. And and really to start, I want to develop a bit of a biblical theology from the early part of the Scripture, a a biblical theology of achievement. Because achievement is actually a gift of God. We are created to achieve. We are created to produce. We are created to be fruitful. We are created to accomplish things in life. Look at the very beginning of the Bible. You can look on the screen with me. Genesis 1, verses 27 through 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
So we are created in the image of God, who is a creator himself, who is a worker himself. He worked, he rested from his work after creating the world, the Bible tells us just before this. And so we see that, uh, that we are, and his image bearers, we are created to create and to produce. He actually tells them here that they are to uh, subdue and rule over God's creation. And not only that, but we are called to be fruitful and multiply. Now, in the most specific sense, being fruitful here, speaking of Adam and Eve, meant to propagate the human race. So that is certainly that they were to have children. That is certainly a primary meaning of being fruitful and multiplying here. But conceptually, it means more than that. They were beyond just having, or not just, beyond the glory of having children. Uh, they were also to, to spread fruitfulness and multiplication throughout the earth. They were to produce and to create and to expand in all areas of life. Taking dominion and subduing is taking the resources that God gives and using them for the flourishing of all people. So the very, the very, uh, the very work in the first creation, the very stamp on the first humans created, and we as well, in the image of God, was that they were to take dominion, to subdue, to be fruitful, to multiply. This is a massive call to achievement. Just a few verses later in Genesis 2, this is what the text says, Genesis 2.15. You can read along. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This too is a mandate for productivity. As image bearers of God, the Creator, they are to cultivate the garden. They are to maintain. These two words have to do with growing, cultivating, multiplying, and then maintaining the garden as well. So they are called to this work of cultivating and maintaining. And because they are working in God's world, they are stewarding God's resources in God's garden, they can only produce what He provides. This is so important because at the very nature of achievement from the beginning of creation, it is all dependent upon God. They are to cultivate the garden that God provided. They are to live out the life that God gave them. Uh, it is God who brings the increase. It is God who empowers their work. All of their achievement is sourced in God. This is the way it was to be from the beginning. Accomplishment, productivity, and achievement all has reference to God. He is the one that provided them the garden and gave them the calling. He didn't just create them and step back and they said, hey, maybe, maybe we should grow some plants or maybe this should grow. And no, this was the calling of God. Accomplishment comes from the mind of God and is demonstrated by the work of God in creation. And not only that, but that all that they produce is something that they have received from God and that they are ultimately, we see throughout Scripture, there to offer it back to God. Uh, they're to worship God through their accomplishment, the very accomplishment of tending and cultivating the garden, of taking dominion, of being fruitful, those very achievements are, are to be offered as glory to God and worship of Him. There's a wonderful verse that I think it, it, it speaks to and can be applied to the idea of accomplishment and achievement. Now, the, the actual passage isn't all about achievement, but this really applies, and it's Romans 11. 
36. And I think this reflects what's going on in the garden. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That is a great verse to clip out and put over your computer when you're at work, to put on the dash of your car as you are driving to visit a client, to put over your sink where you do the dishes. All of my accomplishments, all of my achievements, it's only possible because they are from him. What do you have that you did not receive, Paul says? They are from him. They are through him. All that I am accomplishing, all that I am doing in my family, in my marriage, in my relationships, Uh, in my job, in my uh, recreation, all of it is through him. And what's the purpose of it all? It's to him, to God be the glory, Paul says in Romans 11. This is a great accomplishment passage from him, through him, and it's all offered back to him for his glory. We were created to accomplish, why? So that God would be glorified. That's the purpose of achievement. But when our achievements, wherever they are, in the home, in school, in business, in arts, in athletics, in our hobbies, in our service to others, in our service in the church, whatever the accomplishment is, whenever our accomplishment becomes an end in itself, where the end is my accomplishment instead of the glory of God, it's an idol. That's when it becomes an idol. As with all idols, the achievement idol takes a God-given calling, be fruitful, multiply, take dominion, subdue the earth, plant the garden, keep it, tend it, all of this calling for achievement. When that, when that turns in on me, instead of reflecting to God, it's an idol. Do you see how that works? The original purpose of human achievement from him, through him, to him, we could add for the flourishing of others. When the original purpose of human achievement uh, falls on me, it's idolatry. And we don't get far in the Bible until we find that the goal of achievement is completely out of whack. Nine chapters later, we see a vivid picture of human achievement gone wrong, no longer for the glory of God but for the glory of man. So it happens in Genesis 11. People travel east. They gather in this valley called Shinar. And this is what Genesis 11, 3 and 4 says. Uh, You can read this along on the screen. It says this, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. That's a long ways from the garden, friends. Because what are they saying? They're saying, let's take technology which in this case is bricks and actually mortar, kind of an asphalt, uh, bitumen, kind of an asphalt-type mortar. Let's take this technology and let's work together and let's accomplish something great so that we can make a name for ourselves. No recognition of God. No recognition of his calling. No recognition of his provision. No aim towards his glory. 
Matter of fact, they are independent, completely independent from God in their accomplishments here. It's about their name, their achievement, their unity. And it's called the Tower of Babel. And actually, the Tower of Babel that they build, it is, it is the achievement idol on full display. It's as, it's as powerful of an example of the achievement idol as you will find anywhere in the Bible. Because they state their purpose. We're going to do a great work. We're going to make sacrifices. We're going to labor together. Blood, sweat, and tears to build something all the way up as high as you can go. Why? So our name will be great. Now, we can individualize that and personalize Genesis 11. It'd go like this. My aim is to make a name for myself. My identity is in what I accomplish. I am what I do. My status is based on my success. My worth equals my performance. Those lines are so deeply driven into our culture, especially around here, that that we don't even hear it. We, we don't even know it. We don't even detect it. It is, it is the invisible air that we breathe. My worth is in what... That's why when we sang a song this morning, my worth is not in what I own or what I accomplish. It's like a slap in the face. Whoa, I, didn't have, I don't hear that anywhere. It, it is so countercultural to say that my identity is not tied to what I accomplish. And we'll look at that in a minute. That is radical. Because the culture says everything about you is measured with some metric on a scorecard. And in this culture in particular, it's tied to your achievement or it's tied to your children's achievement. We'll talk about that next week. That's, that's what we live for. Achievement fueled by our calling in God, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, the purpose of God. Achievement fueled. Hard work, accomplishment, achievement fueled with this idea from him, through him, to him. That's the worship of God. Achievement driven by personal, selfish ambition to make a name for me, that's idolatry. The same work can have two very different motives. And this is what we're talking about today. And as with all idols, the achievement idol enslaves That's why the most successful people by earthly, worldly metrics are often the most miserable people. Because it's enslaving. It never fulfills. Genesis 1 and 2, the purpose of God for our fruitfulness in all of life, tying all of our labors to him, trusting him, relying on him, and doing it for the glory of God and the love of neighbor. You know what? That kind of fruitfulness that produces a deep satisfaction in one's soul and heart. But the other kind, it's chasing success. If you chase success idol for yourself, for your name, for your identity, to prove yourself, to be somebody, to earn the respect of your family or your neighbor or whoever it is, to chase success for you, you will always end up empty. Because no accomplishment lasts. It lasts but a minute, and then you are chasing the next one, just as empty as you were before the previous accomplishment. 
Sometimes I find when people who have experienced extreme success uh, speak about this, I find it very enlightening. It's good to hear from people who've actually accomplished what everybody's chasing and see how it registers with them. So I was reading a book, uh, a guy, the guy's from the UK, and he was talking about a UK television show, talk show that I'd, I've never heard of. But uh, on that talk show, they had Matt Damon on, and they were interviewing him. Matt Damon's, a, if you don't know him, he's a famous actor. And uh, this is what he wrote about. He says, the conversation turned to the occasion when Damon won the Oscar for Best Actor at 27, it's quite young, for Goodwill Hunting. The interview was made all the more poignant because Robin Williams, his co-star, had recently committed suicide. Damon said that as he sat looking at his little golden statue, the Oscar, as he sat looking at his little golden statue, he had something of an epiphany. Quote, Damon, imagine chasing that statue and not getting it, and getting it finally in your 80s or your 90s with your whole life behind you and realizing what an unbelievable waste. Damon had assumed something of a philosophical air, having achieved significant success while he was still young. Such a view is rarely heard anywhere, never mind from Hollywood. Damon himself was almost struggling to articulate his thoughts. He said, because it can't. It can't be good enough. It can't fill you up. If that's a hole that you have, that won't fill it. Damon declared, I felt so blessed to have an awareness of that at 27. He describes the epiphany of looking at the statue, and he says, my heart broke. It's like I imagined in that moment another me, an old man, kind of saying, where did my life go, and what have I done? And then it's over. If that's the hole you have, nothing will fill it. Well, that is a hole you have. We all have that hole because we're all created to accomplish, but that won't fill it. In a similar vein, the actor, the comedic actor, Jim Carrey, has famously said, I've seen this quoted many places, but he said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. The achievement idol. Well, how does it show up in our lives? How does it show up in our lives? I'm sure it shows up in many places. I'm going to mention just a few. The achievement idol surfaces in our lives, first of all, through our motivation. Through our motivation. What motivates or drives you? I mean, we have to stop and ask, why? Now, in this series of idolatry, we haven't led everybody on sort of a morbid introspection, like idol treasure hunt. We, we haven't, that hasn't been the goal. Uh, but that's, it's necessary to do that work of looking at our heart and asking, why? And, and this is a place to do it. What is my motivation for accomplishment 
for productivity, for success? What motivates you? Stop and ask why. Think of something right now that you want to achieve. Okay, so think about something that you are hoping to achieve. It could be in in any area of life. Maybe you're trying to buy your first house. Maybe uh, you are working to get a scholarship as a student. You want to get a scholarship for college. Maybe in your job, you're hoping to move up into management. Maybe as a, uh, a mom you are, or dad, you're wanting to raise godly children. What, what are you shooting for? Maybe you want to save enough money to retire. That's, that's something you're trying to accomplish. You want to increase your sales this year over last year. You want your baseball team or your kid's baseball team that you coach. We'll talk about that next week. Uh, you want them to win. You want your team to win the league. Maybe your goal you want to accomplish, you want to graduate from college, you want to graduate from grad school, you want to start your own business, you want to lose 30 pounds. I I don't know what it is you want to do, but what is it you want to achieve and stop thinking about, think about that and ask why. Here's the one thing that we can admire about Babel. They knew their why. It was wicked and devilish, but they knew it. At least they were clear. They weren't, they weren't bumbling around, floating through life, never identifying their why. They knew their why. Here was their why. To make a name for ourse- my, ourselves. So they knew their why. We often don't know our why. We just blindly chase stuff like everyone else without ever stopping and considering why. Why do you want that thing? Why do you want to move up into management? I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just asking why. Why do you want godly children? That's obviously a a wonderful goal, but why? There could be a lot of different reasons that you want that. Why do you want to lose the weight? What are you hoping will happen when you, what is the motive? Why do you want to retire? Retire early even. Why is that? See, there's a difference. There's a difference in our why. There's a difference in responding to the calling of God to fulfill our purpose in God and being selfishly driven for our name. Those are two very different purposes. Calling is responding to God's purpose, like in Eden. It's, the, it's taking the gifts he has given and the opportunities he has provided, and it is using them to the best we can for his glory. Calling is about stewardship. It's about managing and employing what God gives you for his glory. Selfish drive is about accomplishing something to feel good about me. It's about attaining a status. It's about winning the respect of the others. It's about finally being validated before my parents. I've read about a lot of successful people that their entire life has been chasing the approval of their dad, which they never had as a kid. So their whole goal in life is to hear him say, well done, son or daughter. And if they never hear that, then it was all away. So what is it that that is sort of a selfish sort of identity sort of a thing tied to uh, something other than the glory of God? The person working from calling may work just as hard as the person working from selfishly driven ambition, and they may attain the same level of measurable success, but the why will be different and the for whom will be different. One is from him, through him, to him, to God be the glory, is Romans 11, 
The other is from me, through me, to me be the glory. A different why, a different for whom. You can build the same house on rock or you can build it on sand. You can know deep satisfaction in God and his calling, or you can chase the next accomplishment, longing to find evasive, ever-evasive fulfillment. You can worship God or you can worship an idol. So it's the motivation for what we do that we need to stop and ask some whys. This isn't a paralyzing process. You don't do it every five minutes, but it's good to take stock at various points and saying why. Secondly, we can see the achievement idol peeking up its head through our identity. Where do you find your identity? This is really hard to discern, by the way, but it's important. Where do you find your identity? In a book called Seculosity, which is basically a book on idolatry, uh, author David Zoll coins a term performancism. It's what I'm calling the achievement idol. But this is what he says. He says, performancism is the assumption, usually unspoken, that there is no distinction between what we do and who we are. Your resume isn't part of your identity in performancism. It is your identity. What makes you lovable, indeed makes your life worth living, is your performance at X, Y, or Z. I find it's really hard to to, um, be in touch with what is our motivating identity, and sometimes we don't see it We don't see what we base our identity on until we fail in an area or think we fail in an area or when we can no longer do what we do. This is when it becomes clear that we were basing our lives on an identity and on a role and not on our relationship with Christ. So the mother who roots her fundamental identity in motherhood, fundamental, as opposed to rooting her identity in Christ. She despairs when her children mess up. She is lost when the nest is empty and the children are gone because her identity has been there, and when they are grown, she is lost and, and, and uh, doesn't know what to do. Maybe is depressed, disoriented, because her life is not, not just missing her children, obviously, that's natural. Um, but but she, she's inordinately grieved because that has been her whole identity. The person's fundamental identity who is in their work, they despair when they are, if they work in the marketplace, when they're moved to a different role. Well, that's not my role. That's not my title. They lose a sense of that's who I was. If they're laid off or when they retire, many retired people are disoriented because they're no longer what they were because the fundamental identity was rooted in what they did and not their relationship with God and their calling with Him. Back in the 70s and 80s, this will be before many of your times, but many more of us will remember them. Um, There was a tennis star in women's tennis. Her name was Chris Everett. And uh, she was a star in the 70s and 80s, a great player, uh, tennis player. And so she was coming to the end of playing And she began to contemplate her retirement from tennis, and this is what she said. She was about to retire. She said, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. 
Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins. I needed the applause in order to have an identity. Sometimes it's helpful, a helpful mental exercise to say, okay, this is what I do. It's a calling from God. It's a gift from God. But what if it changed? How would I be? What if I no longer could do that job? What if I was laid off? What will it be like when I retire? What if, God forbid, I was disabled and could not do my job? Where would I be then? Where will I be when the kids are grown? Where will I be when my, if my spouse precedes me in death? Obviously, those are grievous things. But where, will I, where am I drawing my identity? Those are gifts. Your work is a gift. But it's not fundamentally who you are in Christ. So a, the accomplishment idol can show up in our motivation. It can show up as well in where we draw our identity. Last point I'm going to make on this is it can show up through our busyness. As the country preacher once said, I'm about to stop preaching and start meddling. We are consumed with doing more in this city and in this church. We are consumed with it. There is a whole industry that is relatively new, an industry of books, seminars, webinars, coaching, apps that hone our efficiency so that we can get more done. One author said this, the most purely, proudly American genre of writing might be the to-do list. That's our contribution to literature, the to-do list. Why do you have to accomplish one more thing? Why do your kids need to do one more thing for the third time? We'll talk about that next week. Why do we have no margin in our lives? What are we afraid we're going to miss out on if we stop, if we pause, if we rest? Why why do you have to do it all? Where's that coming from? Is that rooted in Genesis 1 and 2? Rooted in Romans 11? Or is that rooted somewhere else? Why is the pressure to do more? It it may be that we are driven by the idol of achievement, which offers no rest. Like all idols, it is a slave driver. It offers no rest, no peace, no margin, but it drives us to do more. Why? So that we can be more. Think of how God designed life for people under the old covenant in Israel, for instance. If you think about life there, it wasn't just that it was simpler and they didn't have electricity and they didn't have the internet. Just think about how God designed life for his covenant people. First of all, he said, every seven days, one in seven days, you can't do any work. Well, we're in a busy season. It's the harvest. You can't do any work. I don't care if it's the harvest. This is prime time. You lose a day of harvest, that's serious. You will rest on that day family will rest. Everybody will shut everything down. Oh, and by the way, in addition to that, three times a year, you're going to pack up everybody, and you're going to take a long foot journey to Jerusalem. 
And uh, I mean, there's a whole playlist for it. It's called the Song of Ascents. These are the songs you're going to sing while you're going up there. And you're going to worship the Lord in these various festivals. You will not be producing anything. You're, you won't be producing at home. You won't be producing in your home business, or which there wasn't much of. They were agrarian. Your crops, you won't do anything at there. Oh, and here, here's an added one. Every seventh year, for a year, you won't grow crops. So you've got to grow enough in the year before and you've got to save it. But we're going to let the land rest because it's going to remind you that all you have comes from God and not your productivity. So you're going to take the year and you're not going to do your job in the fields because you need to know we're dependent on the Lord and not the idol of achievement. We don't know anything about that. That was the rhythm of their life. Rest, trust, productivity, of course. Achievement, of course. But this is how God called his people to live. These are the rhythms where there was non-productive, non-achieving. Well, it was achieving something, but different. Non-achieving rest. We're certainly called to work hard and be fruitful. That was the first 20 minutes of this sermon. We are called to that. But we have gone off the rails, friends. And here's where it's left us, not just out there, in here. This is where it's left us. We are threadbare. We are spiritually shallow. We are relationally scattered. We are physically depleted, and some of us worse than that. We are trapped in anxiety and worry because we got to do more and we're not accomplishing enough. We live unfocused lives that aren't centered on following Jesus Christ. And it's not because we're trying to accomplish more for the glory of God in every moment. It's because we're chasing achievement and accomplishment with different mixed motives involved, many of us. So check your busyness. And if you are living with a hurried heart, Tuesday afternoon at 3, ask, is my heart hurried? Thursday morning at 8 a.m., is my heart hurried? If you live consistently with a hurried heart, an overflowing schedule, consider that it may not be Christ that you are serving, but an idol of productivity of accomplishment. And repentance for you, this is glorious, repentance will be stopping, resting, trusting, cutting something off the calendar. That's great. That's a gift from God. Well, the Bible gives us a vision, and I'm going to wrap up here, of godly achievement in Philippians 3. Paul gives us this in Philippians 3, 12 through 15. He says, Not that I've already obtained it or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Could I offer, that's a loftier goal than achievement. Maturity in Christ would be a better goal. That would be a better goal. He says, if you're mature, you'll think this way. Paul's not a slacker. He brought the gospel to the then unreached Gentile world and wrote the better part of the New Testament. He wasn't apathetic. He wasn't low drive. I'd say he accomplished maybe more than all of us combined. (laughs) But look what he said, what am I straining for? 
Two things here I think we see in this passage. His identity was in Christ and not in his achievement. That's the whole purpose of this section. Because in the section before, he goes through and says, I'm not trusting my achievement. I mean, back up in verse uh, 4, he says, I, have, I could put confidence in the flesh, but I'm not going to do that. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. I was the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He said, I had a pedigree, but I wasn't resting on a pedigree for my identity. He went on to talk about his performance. He said, uh, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. I was a top achiever, a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was persecuting the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Okay, that's, a perf- that's achievement. I was blameless under the law, but whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Everything I counted as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That's what he says. I I have a righteousness not my own, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Here's what he said. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, becoming like him that by all means possible I may attain the resurrection. So here's what he's going through that section. He's saying, you know what? My identity is in what Christ has done for me. Previously, it was all about who I was, what my heritage was, okay? Where I went to college, what awards I had won, whatever it is for you, my heritage. It was that. It's not that anymore. It was my performance under the law, blameless. It's not anymore. It's Jesus. It's his resurrection. It's his power. That's my life. He wants to know Christ. We say, well, that's just for Sunday morning and for your devotionals. No, that's for your whole life. He's not just talking about community group here. He's talking about, that's my whole life. I don't care what I'm doing. My whole life is, I want to press into Christ because he's taken hold of me. I want to do whatever I do in the power of the resurrection because he was risen for me and has given me new life. And my goal at the end is not a bunch of trophies and awards. My goal at the end is the resurrection of Christ, seeing him face to face so that all that I've done may be offered up to him. That's what he's saying. That is his identity in Christ, not in himself. Secondly, in this passage, it's clear his motivation is the calling of Christ and not self-centered personal achievement. He says in verse 12, I haven't obtained it. I'm not perfect, but I'm pressing on to know. He's saying, I have not arrived, and that's okay because my identity is not in what I've accomplished. It's in what I'm moving towards. It's in whom I'm moving towards. As a matter of fact, he says, I forget the past. I forget the past, and I move on. The achievement idol says, look at the past. Look at the past, and look at, the, look at your trophy case, and take comfort and identity, and realize you're somebody if you accomplished X, Y, or Z. Or look at your trophy case and have regret and sorrow because you didn't accomplish enough. Paul says, I had it all. That's behind me. I'm pressing on to Christ. What I'm about is not what I've achieved, but what he's calling me to do, it's in following him and trusting him. He's looking that Christ has grabbed hold of me, so it's a racing metaphor. I'm straining for the finish line of the upward call of Christ. It's the call of Christ, not my selfish drive that draws me. I'm pulled I'm pulled by the call of Christ and his return, empowered by the resurrection. I'm not driven and pushed to accomplish, to compare myself and, and to achieve a certain status and everything else. I'm pulled by the calling of Christ. Very different motives. Very different motives. 
Today, let's repent. Let's repent of the achievement idol. Repentance probably won't mean that you quit your job. I mean, talk to someone before you do that, because you may have misheard the sermon. (laughs) I had a very successful job, but God hates success, so I quit. No, that's not what the sermon was about. It's just, why do you do your job? That's what the sermon was about. It probably won't mean you quit your job. It probably doesn't mean you move from your home or some drastic action. But it will mean that you examine your heart and say, why am I doing what to do? Maybe you should write that down. Why? That would be a good question to ask this week as you get ready for work. Why? As you finish the day and put the kids to bed. Why? It's a good question to ask, not to paralyze, but to reorient your heart toward the calling of God. It may mean looking at your schedule and your priorities and asking why. It may be putting in some rhythms of rest in your life. It may mean reorienting your motives, why you do what you do, and so important, for whom do you do it? It may mean pursuing your identity in Christ, not in what you accomplish, and walking through the exercise I talked about, a thought exercise. What if I couldn't do this role that's so important to me? A God-given role. But am I putting my identity in that? One of the most effective ways to see your true identity is to receive the Lord's Supper, and that's what we're going to do now. The band can come on up, please. It's to receive the Lord's Supper, because here's the reality. When we come to the Lord's Supper, you check your identity at the door. And it's said that all ground is level at the cross. Can we make this clear? All ground is level at the Lord's table. We're not coming up here as supervisors. We're not coming up here as those who've won this award. We're not coming up here as the wealthy or the poor to receive the Lord's Supper. We're not coming up here as a student or a professional or a mom or a dad or a musician or an athlete. We're not coming up as a male or a female. We are all those things, but that's not what brings us to the table. That's not what we're affirming at the table. We're not coming up as an engineer or a salesperson. We're not coming up as an American or some other nationality. We're not coming up as Gen Z, a millennial, a boomer. We're putting all status aside, our wealth, our positions, and we're embracing one identity. We're saying we come to the table not as Jew or Gentile, Male or female, slave or free, but in Christ. There's one identity that you receive the bread and cup with. It's in Christ, forgiven by Christ, child of the Father, justified by grace, welcomed to the family. That is the status set apart, a member of his body. That is what we, this is why communion, one reason it's so powerful is because we are identifying Uh, nothing in my hand I bring, no performance, no pedigree, nothing in my hand I bring, no role, no identity, simply to the cross I cling, cling. And we say, I am in you, Lord. It is about what you have performed for me in the cross and resurrection, not what I perform. And we receive that. We're restored, renewed, refreshed in the gospel. And then we go out into all those callings, all those statuses, all those roles, and we do them with fresh vision. We do them with fresh So let's stand together. And if you didn't get uh, the little uh, bread and cup, it's in a singular um, packet, you can go do that while we sing. They're at the back table right back here. Please go get one, and then we'll receive together in a moment.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.